This week on Gravel, we explore the opportunities to make bow hunting turkeys have a binary output. We explore the legal and moral intricacies of corner crossing. And we explore whether Eric Dinger's inability to kill a turkey in Nebraska is because of an excessive population downturn or the fact that he doesn't know how to call. Enjoy. Between where you are and where you want to go, likely lies the gravel road. Sometimes the drive is more fun than the destination. And this is the trip where everyone gets to call Shaka. We're hitting the road. So hop in the truck with your host, Andrew McKean and Eric Dinger. Welcome to the On Gravel Podcast. On Gravel Podcast. Did you just shoot a little cap gun, Dinger? No. I think his voice crack. I think Hitchens farted. Yeah, I think that was your little fake gobble. Well, welcome, America, to another uh, installment of On Gravel. It has been a long time since you heard from us. Uh, I want to back up before I get to maybe reasons why, and this is going to predate Hitchens' existence, probably on this planet, definitely on this podcast. Uh, the most resolute listeners will remember that we had lots of sort of existential problems in the first installments. Everybody thought this was about rocks and that I don't know how we got off on that, but it was never really about rocks. On Gravel was about a whole different way of looking at life. But now we've also been confused with another um, website. It's called On Gravel. And apparently there's a website you can go and just apologize for anything in your life anonymously. On the record, it doesn't matter. This, dear listener, is not on Gravel. But I do have to mention, this is for Hitchens' sake, May 26th is National Apology Day, or in Canada, it's called National Sorry Day. And I just want to start off by apologizing for a couple of things. One, the prolonged absence of on Gravel from the airwaves. Two, my appalling halitosis. Three, my tendency to start most sentences with a conjunction. And uh, lastly, the fact that we haven't been in your earwaves for some time. Hitchens, what would you like to apologize for? I mean, everything. That's the kind of the, that's kind of the national motto. It's if there's anything that I've done that in any capacity is bothered or in any way inconvenienced or surprised somebody at any point in time, I am by default sorry. Wow, that's very unspecific, but I'll take it. Sorry. Well, I mean, otherwise, with how long do we have? <laughs> Dinger? Hello. I'm not sorry for anything. I'm sorry I didn't go to a better college when I was in <laughs> high school. I'm sorry that we don't podcast as often as we should. I'm sorry that it's raining on a beautiful spring day and that I have a baseball game instead of plants turkey hunt, the complete turkey abyss I live in. Wait, Nebraska is like the epicenter of turkeys. You can shoot three a year. Everybody goes there. Kids hunt for $8 or something. I thought, come on, turkey in Nebraska is where it's at. For real, right? Like that's like the thing our state agency promotes. It's, 
I was on board with the th whole idea. We're going to promote Nebraska as the Turkey state, like South Dakota does for pheasants. They did a bang up job of promoting it. And I have no idea what's going on with the Turkey population, but I would guess it's 20% of normal. And I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry that that is just depressing. It's, I don't get to hunt a lot, but I do get to drive around on conference calls a lot. And when you just don't see any turkeys at all in your usual turkey route, I'm sorry for that. I don't know who I need to apologize for and for what, but it is sorry. Is it weather related? I mean, are they, have they redistributed themselves because you've had many a rainy day? I don't know. I mean, is, it, is, it, is, this, is this your fault, Dinger, or is it the turkeys? It's, it's possibly my fault. I, the, the, it's a wide ranging debate in the turkey hunter community here. I, I don't know what numbers are like where you guys are. I don't know. I want to hear about it, but like every turkey hunter I know, our conversations are about last year, there were a hundred birds in this winter roost and this year there's 10. And last year there were three toms in this field every day of the season. And now there's zero. And last year, you know, there was nesting happening here and it's not this year. And so I, I don't know what's going on. We, we talk about it a lot. Landscape's certainly changing. Uh, people are flocking to areas like mine and yours, McKean, where, where they're not, you know, urbanites anymore. They're moving to the country or moving to rural areas. Uh, bird flu is a big topic of conversation in this region because there's been huge chicken kills at some of the barns uh, around here. Uh, we had almost no snow all winter. A lot of people think that maybe there's something about there being snow cover that helps turkeys or helps avoid predation or something. Um, we don't know what it is, but it's way, way, way down. Or maybe it's the fact that we invited every Tom, Dick, and Harry from throughout the world to come and hunt them last year, and we're seeing the outcome of that this year. I don't know. I just want to backtrack a little bit. Are people flocking to Glasgow, Montana? Uh, I wouldn't say flocking, but uh, yeah. Has a single person moved there in the last five to 10 years? <laughs> we are a net, we have net population increase, which is saying something because our geriatric population has been falling off the abyss uh, at increasingly rapid rate, but apparently it's been replaced by a lot of birthing and a lot of moving. So one guy died and his kid and their significant other came back to work on the farm. Wait, well, do, we have a, do we have a scale of the net population increase? I look at it as a seasonal flocking, I guess you'd say. Okay, so we're talking about hunting flocking, not uh, not work from home repopulation flocking. A little bit of both. You'd be surprised. There's lots and lots of people who have. Oh, I would indeed be surprised if you guys have, uh, <laughs> have any kind of flocking. Well, be surprised. Like I said, it's not flocking, but it's definitely happening. But that's beside the point just a little bit. Uh, so Dinger, is it possible that you are experiencing what all of the states in the Southeast and much of the East Coast have experienced, which is your, this is a sort of normalization of year after years of maybe unrealistic abundance? It could be. It, it certainly, like when I first moved to Nebraska, we traveled to the Western part of the state's turkey hunt because there were no turkeys here. Uh, but then for the last 15 years, it's been 
turkeys everywhere. I mean, numerous, numerous toms per section were pretty common. And I, like I said, I, for the first time since I've been an adult in this state, I can't tell you where a tom lives right now, which is very, very different and really frustrating because my one job, I have two jobs. My two jobs are one, know where a tom is on shotgun opener for my wife. And two, know where a buck is on rifle opener for my wife. Knowing those two things buys me all of the balance of all of the rest of the seasons, hunt, fish included. And I know neither right now. But I don't need to know where a buck is right now. I just need to know where I need to know where there's a damn Tom. Anyway, we uh, we jumped right in today. (laughs) I want to hear what's going on in Kansas. Uh, Aaron, are you seeing the same thing? Yeah, I would say that turkey numbers are down uh, very anecdotally because, like, I I hunted for three days. But I did all my hunting on one farm that I I find actually extremely frustrating to turkey hunt. It lays out in such a way and the birds behave in such a way that they're actually super tough to kill relative to other Kansas birds. Um, I would say that there can be... 10 to 15 mature birds on the property in a banger year. And there were three this year. Um, it's, it's one of those, I think that the thing that's so unique there is you have this beautiful Creek bottom, tons of mature hardwoods, tons of egg on either side. And so you would get the chain gobble, which is one of my favorite natural phenomenons is you hit an owl who, you get your gobble and then the gobble echoes off as it's responded to north. And then with enough pause, it then moves south and then travels south of you into the, into the abyss. And it's like, you know, every couple hundred yards, 500 yards to the edge of earshot and back. And I don't know if if that's something that I've experienced simply because of excessive bounty to your earlier point, but because of the, you know, there's, there's a limited amount of roosting locations and tons of tons of forage. Um, when it's good, it's really, really good. And that is one of my favorite things on the planet where you just hear the gobbles fade off. That was absolutely not the case. First day it took us all morning to even find birds. And then the second morning we killed them. And then the third morning they were on the neighbors. But um, <laughs> it's uh, even just talking to people around like, a lot of people that I know that would hunt have sort of self-limited themselves to one bird instead of two and driving around, you don't see them in kind of the classic like permanent strutter locations. And uh, yeah, I would say that the consensus is that the numbers are down quite bad. And uh, it's interesting to hear that it's like that in Nebraska as well. Cause yeah, I, th- I think turkeys like for me are such a fun opportunity for getting people into the game because it's the, you know, they're, they're the gateway bird. I'm a very strong believer in that little mini elk. They're tasty. It's a lovely time of year. Weather's nice. They behave in such a way that is conducive to making people want to go hunting. And like, I, yeah, I definitely don't, wouldn't feel great about stacking them up, at, which is un, unlike me because I absolutely love stacking turkeys. <laughs> I think we have more birds up here than we've had in years. Uh, it's hard to say. They're certainly in different spots. Like I've got 
a flock on a chunk of ground on a tributary stream of the Milk River. That's I've never I've never seen birds there in the spring. I've seen them maybe a couple of times in the fall, uh, and it's a big old flock that just seems to be there consistently. They've duped me twice, uh, and just anecdotally hearing things from friends, it seems like there are there's just more birds in more places. So. I don't know. I think this is actually one of the fun things about turkeys is their variability um, from year to year, kind of where you see them. Yeah. You've got that core, that core habitat, but um, at least here in Montana, and I would say elsewhere in the West where I've hunted them, they have such different seasonal preferences. You know, you might see them all in that winter roost stuff in the first week of the season, but by the last part of the season, they're, in sagebrush prairie above these little riparian streams. Um, anyway, it's been wet, weird weather though here too. We've had snow the last two weekends when I could hunt, when I was not at a track meet. And uh, yeah, things have just been off, but so I've, I'm apologizing that I haven't killed a bird yet. So here's a question that I have for you guys cause you're old um, and I'm not quite old enough to have a strong opinion on this, but you, especially McKean, certainly are. Is the cycle thing real? Like in, I, I spent a bit of time working towards a degree in, degree in conservation biology and there's the consistent reference of the, you know, the links in the snowshoe hare and their interrelated population and the whitetail and the wolf and et cetera. But these are examples from kind of the untamed North country where human influence is not significant if present at all in something that is as uh, heavily influenced by human pressures and traffic and practices as turkeys or pheasants or what have you is there a cyclical nature to it that you've seen in your countless years on earth or uh, is it is that something that's sort of reserved for sort of the the ecological zen of uh, of undisturbed locales Mm. So the biggest trend I would, I have seen are not these sort of little variations within a decade long arc or whatever. It's this bigger trend of paucity and then abundance that seems like has described everywhere we've hunted turkeys for the last 30 years. You know, the, the great conservation restoration story of they were, there were none, or there were so few, we got to work on things. We had this trap and transplant effort. We brought them back. I mean, the whole sort of origin story of the National Wild Turkey Federation. This is where I'm, I'm kind of borrow a little bit from this idea of unnatural abundance. Um, we brought them back into vacant habitat. They absolutely soared because there was no competition. There was abundant food. Um, I'm not sure that the hunting pressure had a lot to do with it. Certainly early, there was just enough to go around for everybody. And they were in pioneering into new areas all the time. And you saw the participation sort of, um, follow that curve. It seems to me like the, the reports that we started hearing probably 10 years ago in upstate New York and, and the kind of that country, that was the leading edge of what then was like a chain gobble to the South. Like what happened to the birds? We're not seeing them in the same places. We can call it the Dinger Nebraska syndrome now, but exactly the same thing he's saying has been said from Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia for the last seven, eight years. Um, I would suggest that it's probably we have filled all of that vacant habitat. And now um, it, the either the, uh, the available food is reduced or 
you know, to follow on your snowshoe hare idea, predators, especially skunks and raccoons have moved into those areas. Now they've got ground nesting birds. And so there may be an increase in abundance of those nest raiding predators. Um, so now it seems to me like turkeys have redistributed themselves and sort of shrunk into the core habitats that probably they existed at the very dawn of the restoration era. And that's where we got most of that abundance again. I don't know. There's also other things you can look at. You know, there's, there's the whole idea of the, of agricultural practices and especially, you know, insecticides and some of these broad spectrum herbicides that are affecting, you know, bug availability. And so if you've got a weather event um, on top of poor forage for, you know, bugs for little chicks, you can have some pretty um, widespread declines. The thing that I can't really understand about it is it seems like we've had these declines year over year over year, instead of that one year class that's missing, but you've got a couple to back into it or make up for it. So I don't know, I don't really have an answer, but I do feel like the bigger cycle that I've seen is a macro cycle is this big 30 year cycle rather than some variation within that. Yeah, it's interesting because where I grew up, I, so part of my affinity for turkeys is that they were reintroduced essentially when I was a kid and they reached a huntable population this when I was 12, which was the first year that I could hunt. So in an area where there were some very established deer hunting practices, um, some of which I are still in place and I will forever not understand it was kind of a, a, a brave new world around Turkey. So with my insatiable obsessive personality and the opportunity to do more hunting, I kind of was locally and sort of, I had, I, I was on the cutting edge or leading the charge around consistently killing birds at home and, and ended up, taking a lot of people and introducing a lot of people at home and, and teaching, you know, dad and his friends and calling them in for people, whatever. So like, it was cool for me as a kid because all these people that were showing me all these other hunting things, I was then able to do that from a young age, which I think is a pretty rare opportunity that just came about because of the schedule of reintroduction. And it sounds like, um, from the decoding, my dad's various, you know, succinct and, and, uh, and quite brief text messages that the, there's, you know, there are turkeys in my yard at my house at home, which makes no sense. Like it's not even near, it's not within a half mile of a roost tree, um, a, a possible roost tree. So that's really interesting. Um, but it doesn't seem to be hurting as much up there despite it being like the worst habitat. Like we are on the, where I grew up is the Northern edge of the Eastern wild Turkey. Like they tried to reintroduce them sort of the next wildlife management unit North one winter, all 40 of them are up in the tree, gets cold, they all stay up there for like two weeks and then eventually start falling frozen to death out of the tree because there was too much snow and too much cold, which is quite sad. But, you know, it's we've always been kind of on the northern edge of it. But there isn't much as far as uh, advanced agricultural practices, lots of dairy farms, you know, the occasional crop farming piece. So that's, that's I have very few windows into it but they seem to be doing all right up there, which would be very similar to the upstate New York example. Um, I don't know. It's curious. I'd love, I'd be, I'd, I would love to, I would love to understand more because I like turkey hunting a lot and I want there to be lots of turkeys because that shit's fun. 
So in Aldo Leopold's book, he talks about the 10 year cycle in oaks matches perfectly the 10 year down cycle in rabbits. And he, he shared in a story about how uh, young sapling oaks get trimmed off by the rabbits for nine out of every 10 years. And then the one year that there aren't very many rabbits creates an age class of oaks because those oaks are able to get beyond the, the sort of sapling level coming up out of the ground. This feels really sudden compared to, the, I mean, I, maybe it is, is, maybe it is, Andrew, what you're talking about is the distribution back to where they're really meant to be. But I don't know, where I live is, is perfect turkey habitat because every acreage has tall trees and every, every field has a, a wind block and a wind break. And it just seems so odd that they would go from so numerous to so few so quickly if it wasn't something like bird flu or or just the complete overhunting of them or if they bred you know maybe late last year one thought i had was maybe did the shotgun turkey season open last year before they really kicked into breeding and they just didn't get bred or how much hunting know. pressure do you have to have to deplete turkey though man like no that's what i mean well, a male turkey you, you have yeah. you have 10 like uh, circa two three years ago and I'm seeing it more abruptly because I haven't turkey in the last two years because of the pandemic. I was stuck up in Canada. Um, but like you used to be, Jake's wouldn't gobble. Like at home, they always gobble in Ontario. And then here, I'd be like, oh, is that a Jake? And it's like, was never a Jake because they just didn't gobble. They just roved around as like these packs of assassins. You know, you got like 14 Jakes just horned to the absolute max. And like, I would just struggle to believe that there's hands that are, you know, making a sound and possibly there's a possibility of them accepting uh, reproductive load and them not, <laughs> them not flourishing. It just doesn't make, I mean, these things did not miss, you know, you call the same batch in four times in the day, you go to a different farm and they fucking show up again. It was crazy. So I like, I just can't imagine hunting pressure really beating up the turkeys that bad, but maybe that's wishful thinking. I'm with you, Aaron. I, 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 I tend to agree the turkeys are going to get bred. Um, I'll be interested to see what happened in like Georgia and some of those Southeastern states with delaying the shotgun opener till after the peak gobble, which was the whole kind of the idea about that. At least the mature gobblers were getting killed before they had a chance to breed, but birds being what they are and finding each other across landscapes. I can't imagine that those hens were not getting bred by either. Yeah subordinate two-year-olds or the pack of roving jakes 100 with you i just wonder about the bird flu you know the the leading edge of it was the snow goose migration to the north and nebraska being in this you know on the the flyway of that i wonder if there was early cross species infection of that have people found carcasses anywhere in your area of nebraska to to confirm that or they, I haven't heard anybody say that. The only anecdotal thing I'll say is that, you know, the coon, skunk, coyote populations are completely through the roof because, I mean, there's just a, a, a raccoon skinned coon pelt here is nine bucks. Um, there's just no financial incentive whatsoever to do any trapping. So, I, you know, could that have something to do with it? Maybe, but my guess is any bird that fell to anything other than uh, a predator was 
quickly gobbled up by a coon or a or a skunk once it hit the ground dead and so no i haven't heard anybody say anything about finding dead birds are you seeing roosters rooster pheasants crowing you know pretty (laughs) well i'm asking because Uh, i think they would also be susceptible to bird flu so that yeah, I, it's a great question. Um, I have seen some quail, but the, in my area of the state, uh, despite there being a lot of habitat, um, no, we we have we're like in the we just as well be in Canada. I mean, it's <laughs> it's it's a long ways from any pheasant population. I if you see a pheasant here, it's like stop and take a picture, not stop and shoot it, which is kind of depressing when you think about my love of the upland games so what are you going to do domestically if you can't get the girl on a turkey i mean are you just homebound yeah (laughs) it's going to keep going to baseball games every day i gotta figure something out what are we going to talk about today hitchens besides turkeys well uh the corner crossing thing that uh, seems important. That uh, that's curious. I I mean I'm thinking a lot about turkeys. Um, oh, I, my other general grievance on I have a couple more general turkey grievances, and then I have a grievance around. And Dinger, I'm really disappointed that you didn't personally fix this when you were involved with state, um, the state licensing mm. software, whatever the hell you did for before you told people <laughs> that trees would save the world. Um, I wish that when you got the results of that, there was a standardized timing for the submission of draws and the results of hunting draws, because it can become quite perilous to plan a hunting season when you're getting information in some cases as late as June. And I really like elk hunting. And so if I'm going to set some time aside for myself to elk hunt, I need to know who else has elk tags that wants me to call for them or where I could theoretically draw an elk tag or where I could theoretically buy a landowner elk tag. And when people are, when the results are scattered over such a lengthy period of time, it's just very frustrating to me. I wish that there was like a national draw day and you just logged in and there it was the future just laid out in front of you all that disappointment just delivered in one package. I don't don't know if anybody shares this, but this is the rare places where we need more federal government intervention. I think that the feds get the states in line and we need to have draw day. uh, That and so many other things about the process of being a license holder and tag drawer in this country um, could use help. Um, I'll tell you, I'm disappointed that in my time in those roles, I wasn't able to make any of those significant changes. There's a lot of change that happens in that space, but the amount of legislation by state, the differences in how they manage their wildlife and how they count their wildlife and how they issue their tags and what role the the commission plays versus the legislature versus the director versus the licensing manager, you know, what can be done in software that they have or that they've bought the amount of layers of protection 
that exists between a problem and its solution is it's got to be uniquely American. Like <laughs> the, 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 the whole state's rights are. What's France, that? France has got to be worse. Uh, it's just, I lived in France and I found buying a fishing license quite tedious. I don't know, man. I, but the, in France, may, maybe it's different in France, but here there's 50 ways of doing it, right? And we want the state to manage its wildlife. We think that's a good idea. I think that's a good idea. But the amount of bureaucracy that creates in the lives of, it, of the customers of each state, and especially of customers who want to move between states, is very, very frustrating. And you're right. I didn't make nearly the kind of headway I hoped there. Sounds like an apology to me. Do you want to make formalize that? Yeah, I'm sorry that my impact on the license buying public will really only be felt in a couple of states. So look, I hear your pain points. I hear your concerns. I hear all that stuff. But look, we asked for this, right? We asked for this when we said, this is going to be a state-specific thing. It's, it's imperative that there is not uh, this national way that we look at wildlife we're going to definitely um, we're going to leave this to each individual state to figure out. And I, so to me, it's just an organic. Just figure it out on the result, same day. Just figure it out on the same day. That. Well, here's where it gets complicated is because we have so isolated each of these um, states to their own sort of conventions and traditions and whatever you will hear a state in the West say, wait a minute, we can't possibly know how many elk there are until we do winter flights. Oh, and by the way, we can't possibly know how the recruitment was until we do spring green up flights. Meanwhile, in the, in the East, they're saying, we don't even care about that. We have harvest data that we're relying on from the past year's season that we are using for population management. So until you get the, the basis for the distribution of these tags also sort of standardized, you're not going to have any agreement about when those results are going to be. Available. We'll just make it the latest. Of, it could be the, whatever one's latest. We'll just do it the latest. I don't care. Just, just, I don't have any kids, right? But I probably will. And when I have kids, I'm not going to be able to threat. do as much hood rat shit with my friends. And right now, like, I don't want a day of September to pass without high-quality elk opportunity. I'm spoiled, yes. But I'm not even necessarily going to hold the tag. I just need to – because I, I I just need to be bugling at them, and I don't know where or who or how and what measures I need to take to secure the noise. Seems easy to me. Just take September off. I, I mean, figured it out. I do, I do, but I, you know, sometimes it's the double commitment. But I did, I made my first commitment. I'm going to, I'm going to be in Colorado on September 8th, and I'm going to make a lot of noise. It's going to be very fun. <laughs> and then, uh, and then my other grievance that I think is interesting, I'd be curious to hear your perspective on is I love bow hunting, um, but I think bow hunting for turkeys is should should not be legal unless you're using a uh, decapitation style broadhead crossbow yeah good fucking crossbow yeah the nice difference the nice thing about turkey hunting with a crossbow is it actually has the exact same range as a shotgun it, it may be even longer so in this case it's actually the most long range weapon that you could use. i'm not even going to start talking about crossbows. oh my oh my that I, was wow a, I, you sound like he's for it 
I, where it was trending, let's put it that way. Not trending towards crossbows. I just think that there's so many turkeys lost by very good archery hunters and very good shots, and it's just a strange thing. Um, it's a strange thing to have the like method of take result in significant loss, and I don't know why it has a season. I don't. I don't understand. I, I find that to be. If we're worried about bird populations, I feel like the the losses from bow hunting turkeys are quite high and i have had some people tell me that that's because like it doesn't happen to them but that's an absolute minority and the people that told me that almost well they exclusively work in bow shops so they have a vested interest but yeah i struggle a little bit with uh with archery turkey hunting do, do you guys give a shit about that does that is that something you've thought about I've thought about it. I've lost a couple of turkeys that I hit. I mean, whether they died or just recovered, I don't know, but, um, I think they recovered. They're the size of a damn basketball and you put a 30 inch stick through them. Um, I've also killed turkeys that have gotten hit with pellets before. I mean, they're, you know, they're resilient. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, I think it is a problem. I'm not to the point where I'm going to say it should be outlawed. But I think the acknowledgement that there is wound, more wounding loss with archery gear with turkeys than shotguns. It doesn't, you don't need to outlaw archery. You just need to mandate a decapitation-style broadhead so that it's a binary result. So it's either a, a non-fatal strike because if you hit it in the body with the, that style of broadhead, it doesn't do meaningful damage. And if you hit it in the head, the head is terminated and the turkey dies immediately. So you can still encourage archery hunting. But the archery hunting needs to have a binary outcome because you, how often in, in the world of hunting are you able to have a binary outcome with a shot? Either it's a complete total kill or it's not a kill at all. And very rarely. Right. So we have the opportunity to do that with the technology we have. And yeah, it's a little trickier, but like shoot them in the head. You still get to have I, Before I would agree with that, I'd also like to know how many turkeys are getting hit with pellets at 50, 60 yards. Yeah, but how fatal is that compared to ramming an arrow through those things? Well, I mean, I, I, I don't know. And I, to me, until I would know that, seems well, like that's we don't know we were talk, We're trying to blame turkey loss on the damn bird flu. Like, <laughs> the whole point is to discuss. You said you used to be a journalist of integrity. Man, the, the Zoom cut off at the perfect time. I was about to say mean things to Andrew and, and on the, in front of the recorded public, so I... Well, it's, I always know we're about to hit our stride when Hitchens goes on a, I thought you used to have integrity. And then that's, you know, <laughs> so that's neat and all. Oh, just this, this, the perennial sidestepping. Just Jim Rome, oh. Jim Rome says, have a take. Have a <laughs> fucking take, Andrew. Okay. What is more, what are, where's there more wounding loss? Five. Number five, shot pellets in the skin and external breast. Like an arrow is passing through. It's just... Not necessarily. Not necessarily. I've had an arrow hit a wing butt. Didn't pass did, through. Did you remember to put a broadhead So the amount, <laughs> the amount of shotgun shooters so far outpaces the amount of archery hunters, shooters for turkeys. I would say they're proportionally there's more wounding loss with archery gear in terms of real numbers it's much bigger issue with shotgunners okay but the shotgun provides a superior opportunity for a clean harvest 
that proportion is significant. And look, I don't fucking love bow hunting. You know, I'm a guy that's traipsing around watching you roast shit with rifles at 300 yards while I'm sitting there with my little bow in my hand because I quite love bow hunting. But I just struggle with it. I, I just think that like it's there's just a an outrageous risk, even if you do things right, that like you can't blood trail turkey, they fly. Like we're using the same mechanism of fatality with an animal that does not leave you the blood trail or the path to pursue. You've never blood trailed a turkey? I've tried. The one time I shot one with a bow. Actually, I shot two with a bow. And one think, of them. I think this is just a, a data point we need to consider in the in the call to middle ground that is the, the crossbow. Like, Fuck around weird. with the crossbow. <laughs> the, the call to middle ground is a headshot broadhead. It's perfect. We have a perfect solution. If you had a shotgun load that you could put in a shotgun that either immediately vaporized the turkey guaranteed or didn't hurt it, you would use it. You would advocate for it. Where else do we have this technology? The number of people I have seen who have had guillotine type broadheads have never shot them at a target. They have no idea where they're shooting until they go to the field. Then they miss. Figure it out. Get a fucking pool noodle, people. Shoot the pool noodle, chop. It's perfect. <laughs> like pool flotation as a mechanism for archery practice. Hello. Like there's no way I'm, I'm the only person that's thought about, oh, I should practice with this weapon before I take it to the field. It's binary. So it goes through the pool noodle. How rich are you? I mean, those things cost like 12 bucks. You go through the pool noodle. What happens to that broadhead? It's ruined, right? No, it's a pool. Noodle. It's a piece of foam. You put but it ruins it when it hits the ground. You put an archer target behind it. You lost me. How rich? Am yeah, I, I don't know what he's even I'm, talking about. Something I'm, in France. I'm full oh, send yeah. on the archery turkey hunting. It's way more fun. Argument. Classic. Way more fun to shoot him with, with bow tackle than it is with shotgun. False. I disagree. I love false. shooting. That I is false. Shooting. That on its own is false. Hold on. Walk it back. McKean, say your bit. I'm going to have a cool down period. <laughs> I would rather shoot him every single day with a shotgun than a bow. Concur. Here's why. Wrong. Wrong. No. He, okay. How, how many turkeys did you kill with a bow that you weren't in a ground blind? Exactly. Not That's many. my take on it, too. You're sitting in it's like you have the opportunity to just go analog. You got to call in your mouth, bring some decoys if you feel like carrying them. I hate carrying them, so I don't really take them. And you just run and gun, baby. You're just moving, reacting to the woods. You're finding a way. You're trying to be predictive. You're on it. You put up or you sit in a tent and put a decoy out and just hope that you hear the spitting and drumming wakes you up. It's bogus. You have the opportunity for this incredible nuanced pursuit to hone your craft as a hunter and to have a true, a true moment of auditory defeat where you convince them that you are a living thing with just the sounds you make and you blend in the environment. Amazing. Electric. Or you sit in a tent, uh, you drool on yourself. Go do that in your season, dude. Ground blinds for turkeys shouldn't be illegal, but like <laughs> that is the easy way out. It is way more boring to sit in a ground blind for sure. Right. For sure. Like, Why are we trying to bore ourselves? Like this is meant to be fun. Like you're not counting on the turkey breast for survival. I, I am rich enough that I don't need to kill a turkey to live. So, but just, you just don't use a ground blind. So a couple, couple retorts. One, when I am turkey hunting by myself, I agree. Really fun, 
would much rather be at the base of a tree spot and stock what however you want to go about it it's really no, fun to trick handlers. that's no fun you gotta call man well you but if you have archery tackle you got to be in the right spot behind a tree in order to execute a shot but my thing is is that i almost always hunt with either my kids or my wife or someone who does is not familiar with the notion of state sit still and so a, a ground blind is like the only way that that can happen. Well, it's Otherwise, a great way to make sure that they're intub- other intubate them. I could intubate them or in some other way sedate them, but then they're going to miss the whole idea. I mean, the key to sitting still is sitting still. Like, it's not like it's an advanced tactic. And I understand like <laughs> a lot of people that have moved at the wrong time. And the funny thing is, is some of the people that least understand sit still from my hunting experience are Western hunters who you know, grew up in Alberta or BC or whatever. And they just like, can't imagine that something can actually see that well. So like the more frustrating lack of sit still are people that are used to being able to get away with drawing on an elk or whatever. And they don't, and they're like, what do you mean? It saw me. I'm like, what saw you? Like they're, they have psychotic vision, but it's just like, if we're trying to get it to be electric for these people, why do we make it as boring as possible? Well, see, it, this reminds me of the baseball argument. You've heard, do you, is baseball boring to you, Hitchens? No. Good. So my argument for baseball has always been baseball's not boring. You are. Sitting in a ground blind isn't boring. You are. It's really fun to sit in a ground blind with somebody you want to talk to. You could ask any human being I've ever come in contact with at any point in my life. I am not boring. If I have one fault, <laughs> boring is not among them. So I reject that claim. Um, sitting a ground blind is an inferior means of pursuing the wonderful opportunity that is turkey hunting. Yeah. Okay. I'll give you that. And I agree with that. In parallel, the shotgun goes with it. And here again, we find ourselves where the crossbow is the happy middle ground. The crossbow is happy in no way <laughs> for anybody. Unless you're missing an eye or have some sort of meaningful disability or you don't have the physical competency to draw a bow, in which case I understand that there are alternate routes to the wonder of archery hunting that you may pursue via an alternative mechanism. But as an able-bodied person, it remains inexcusable. It's, it's like shooting a shotgun, except all of a sudden you have a 50% chance of the turkey just eating your shot and running away. All right. McKean, corner crossing. Corner crossing. It is the topic du jour or de año. Um, to bring our listener along, I'm sure you've followed, but uh, there's this case in Wyoming where four Missouri hunters brought a stepladder to Elk Mountain. That's big, massive south of I-80 if you're traveling between uh, Laramie and Rollins. It's almost entirely privately owned, but as is the case with many of these Western transportation corridors, it's also super checkerboarded. So every square mile, the land ownership changes between private, public, in this case, BLM, private, public. And so just like the checkerboard, the only place that those like property types meet is at the corner. Um, there's on our own place in, our, in the BLM surrounding me, we've got tons of these corners. The kind of traditional management of them has kind of been 
a bit of a live and let live, at least in my part of the world. Um, some hunters have accessed uh, corner locked public ground and it hasn't been a big deal. The landowner let it happen or they just did it without asking, uh, making a big deal of it. In other places, and I think this is the, the larger case, people have been afraid to test the precedent of it. So they've basically not done it meaning that an awful lot, I think it's 1.2 million acres is what Onyx has factored uh, of public land that would be available through legal corner crossing is unavailable to the sporting public. It's a lot of ground. So these Missouri hunters decided to make a test case of this. They take their stepladder, they cross over the corner. So from a section of BLM ground to another section of BLM ground that meets only at that corner. And they kill a couple of elk and a deer. They bring the animals back. They hoist the um, remnants of those animals back over the stepladder and they go back to their camp. They get the attention of the private landowner who owns this elk mountain. He sends his ranch manager out with the game warden. And after a lot of sort of haranguing and uncertainty, they charge the hunters with trespass, criminal trespass. The case goes to the state uh, district court where on Friday, the four hunters were found not guilty of criminal trespass. The, there's lots and lots and lots of sort of talking points and nuance to it. But the big takeaway is, is this the precedent setting case that people have been sort of waiting for that will start a cascading effect that, that's gonna basically open up this 1.2 million acres to public hunting. Um, it's fascinating to me just from a public policy perspective and also the what happens next. I think the management of it is gonna be uh, fascinating to see, to see what happens. Do landowners start to impede hunters from even reaching that corner through you know, some sort of nefarious action? Do agencies get involved and facilitate access through you know, uh, a bunch of different things? You could even look at like, this could facilitate land exchange. So we get consolidating the private and the public as you know, sort of accessible slash inaccessible blocks of ground. Um, are there gonna be conflicts around this? I mean, are some landowners gonna say, uh, hey, yeah, this might be public ground, but this is my public ground. And you know, there's a sort of a purity test among landowners right now that are basically trending in that direction. There's also a similar and opposite purity test among hardcore hunters to say, oh, hell no, this is a public property right that's being de de denied us or deprived of us, and we're going to push it. So um, you got these sort of big two tectonic plates kind of working at each other, and, and we'll just see what happens with sort of the precedent setting thing. My guess is that that criminal case will be appealed by the landowner, probably elevated to the federal level that may take this away from sort of a Wyoming-specific precedent and make it more of a nationalized issue. Um, I've been teaching a class uh, for the Montana Master Hunter Program on public policy advocacy and basically how to get involved, how to make a difference. And, and for the last two sessions, sort of, I've got a couple of case studies that I like to use, but the corner crossing one has kind of come to the fore. And it's been fascinating to talk to the students in this class, about two thirds of whom are hunters who have either moved to Montana uh, and want to kind of develop a deeper experience with hunting and, and kind of become super hunters. 
but about a third are traditional hunters who also have own land in some ways or another. And one of the interesting things in the last class I was teaching is, is one of the students, uh, this corner crossing issue had just come up and come out. So he's in the class to be kind of an Uber hunter, but he's also a landowner. It was interesting to hear his take on it. He's like, I've got, I live right on the border of a landlocked or a corner locked BLM section. If the public is allowed behind my house, um, he was finding all kinds of reasons to uh, think it would be a horrible idea between his dogs attacking or barking at these hunters to uh, one of his big problems was the slob hunting um, argument that hunters can't seem to police themselves and the fewer hunters on my public ground, the better, even though he is a, you know, is a hunter. So I don't know, I look at it. Uh, I'm excited to see this finally kind of move, but I think the management of it is going to be really important. I guess I'll just leave it at that. What do you think Hitchens? Well, I just think logically, you know, there are two pieces of ground that touch and you don't step on somebody else's property. I, like that makes sense to me as being a legal act. You know, I, I understand the nature of the, you know, the sort of landlocked public being a significant value add to a piece of property. I was actually looking at a, at a piece of property in Alberta that would have, it does, it's not necessarily landlocked, but it's, it gives a lot easier access to public and, frankly, the reason for purchasing or, or exploring the purchase of this piece of property was to have access to the public. Like it's kind of intrinsically baked into the value of private property. So if I can see how it's a massively contentious case and that there would be a lot of resistance from private landowners who see that public as a part of the value of the land that they own. But I just don't understand how two pieces that come into physical contact that you can walk from one to the next way. Like it, I just don't understand how legally that wouldn't be, wouldn't be okay. There's a Randy Newberg did a two part series podcast, maybe it's even three part on this very thing. And the, the legal underpinnings are actually really interesting. The and basis for and complicated, but also maybe not passing the straight face test in a lot of cases. So the, 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 the legal justification for depriving the public of the ability to cross from corner to corner is kind of based on this old English notion of the surface area being part of a larger estate that goes below the surface of the ground to the core of the earth and into the heavens above the surface of the ground in a Pythagorean um, vector that just happens from, you know, so it's a, it's a, it's a radiating angle from the core of the earth. And it just happens to bisect the surface in, you know, whatever the land ownership area is there. But the idea that that pie extends into the heavens then makes the airspace above that private land also private. I mean, that's, that's the legal argument. And again, I don't think it passes the straight face test, right? I don't think the airlines are asking permission to fly over my land. Right. And through my private airspace, but because it is sort of entrenched in that sort of medieval land ownership um, idea, like a lot of our laws are, it's just been one that people didn't really want to pursue. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess that is a good clarifying 
piece of the argument as far as why it wouldn't be obviously legal. But yeah, like what it to your point around the airlines or planes or what have you. And then and then even with mineral rights, isn't there like a separate ownership of mineral you can separate the ownership of mineral rights and and surface land surface and in a lot of states you can even directionally drill yep so you know you're leaving sort of that that pie shaped property subterranean property ownership estate you're just slurping down underneath somebody's business yep everybody's business up in the business andrew has anybody talked about in in your circles the concept of like a corner easement because Andrew said it, or I'm sorry, Aaron said it perfectly, that some part of the intrinsic value of a piece of land that somebody bought because it was landlocked is a material part of their asset. Maybe they would forego that in the form of a corner easement on their own. Maybe it, maybe the, there's a market mechanism here for a certain percentage of that 1.2 million acres to just be compensated by the state to unlock their corner. Yep, it's been discussed. Um, you know, I think it's a perfect opportunity for something like, you know, you look at what happened within the farm bill with the um, uh, the access agreements that add value to people who are entering into agreements for CRP or for Equip or some of these other farm bill pr- uh, programs. There's an additional sort of multiplier effect if you also allow public access. So to me, it can be handled from a, you know, a, a, a funding mechanism. That way it could also be handled. I mean, look at what we do with other access agreements. You know, there's just, there's a, there's a pool that you could then apply to and where it may, would make sense. You know, you might get kind of, you know, access to, to ground that has especially beneficial habitat or hunting, you know, uh, prospects. Maybe you get a little more money for that rather than, you know, some of these sections of BLM that are landlocked are BLM likely because they don't have a lot of intrinsic value for wildlife or livestock or anything else. So just as with private land, not all each one of these landlocked sections or corner locked sections is equal to the next. I like the idea of voluntary easements much more than the other model, which is uh, some people have brought up and that is condemnation. That this is in the public's interest, just like infrastructure, you know, roads and, and railroads and those other sorts of things that the, the government can, can condemn for the public value. Based around sort of Western traditions and certainly with like these land, land management agencies trying to get along with their private land cooperators, I don't think condemnation has got much likelihood of, of being enacted, but it is a tool in the kit. I think we need a credit card machine on a little bridge out over the private land onto the public where the credit card machine acts like the troll that allows people to pass once they've swiped their credit card to pay for the bridge. (laughs) That's among my worst ideas ever. Maybe not the worst. We've had some pretty bad ones. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess, would you be able to just have the, have it be like a right of first refusal? Like if somebody with adjacent land wants to buy the chunk of public, they could buy it because it's essentially non-existent as public land anyways. And if they didn't buy it, then they could just deal with the consequences of it. Like, 
have like a limited sale. It's like, okay, if anybody's touching this, um, then you could buy. And if they don't feel as though it's worth their worthy of their purchase, then it's public and put in the bridge. I actually like that idea as maybe a mechanism to have a fund to then start to enable access to the ones that don't sell, you know, that are, are still in the public domain. Um, but even if it's private, how are you going to access it without easing somebody else's property? The latter. So you would buy land that you could only get to by ladder? No, it's only for the people whose land touches it. Oh, I see. Okay. So it's I like, like I idea. kind of the right of first refusal. So those adjacent landowners would have the ability you know, and, and with market appraisals, I mean, some of, you know, that that would dictate sort of the relative value of these pieces of property. So there wouldn't be a one size fits all, but then you take the revenue from those and that's what you use to enable access to the ones that don't sell. Because like, I hate the idea of selling public land, but if it's completely inaccessible, then you may as well- It's not cash. really public anyways. Yeah, it's not public anyways. So you cash it out and then- if you don't, then you allow access and it becomes public. So one of the complicating aspects of this entire thing is what Hitchens alluded to, but is kind of a fiction. And so the illusion that he made is that there is real value to this inaccessible public land to the adjacent private landowner. In theory, that's the case. In reality, you cannot... There's no ability to appraise that public ground because that's considered unviable. What happens though is so so you can't get a bank loan, for instance, for at least in my part of Montana, if you're trying to buy a ranch that's half BLM land and half deeded, you can only get a loan for the appraised value of that deeded land. The the associated public land has no real estate value. Hmm. And I think that's a nuance that's lost on an awful lot of people. So for instance, in our particular world, we've got, let's say we've got 80% public on top of our 20% deeded. We can only monetize when it comes to appraisal, appraised value or trying to sell the value of that deeded land, even though all of that public goes with it. Weird. So get that cash money. No cash money, no land. No cash money, no land. Bring the ladders. But I think that's actually an important thing to keep in mind when you think about trying to sell that inaccessible that public. That is rent, a right? transformative piece of the puzzle. That, that, that is the landmine in the middle of the puzzle. I agree. Um, that essentially eliminates the viability of my what I thought was actually a reasonable idea. No, no, no. Actually, you're exactly wrong. It enhances the idea of that because what landowner doesn't want to accrue that value into their deeded portfolio? I think there would be all kinds of interest in actually people, uh, the, the deeded landowners buying that because it, it, it increases the size of their appraised uh, estate. But by appraised have, estate, you meant future development. Future development, future valuation, whatever that might be. 
<laughs> future development. I mean, that's yeah. the downside of what you're talking about is unless you, unless you put a permanent easement on the ground that you sell, thereby eliminating its ability to be developed. What I would do if I was that landowner is I'd put a road through the side of my property and sell the thing I just bought in chunks. I mean, I don't know the vibe, like where these places are and what that would look like. So I can't really comment other than that feels like a somewhat defeatist perspective, <laughs> particularly in terms of where most of this land is likely located. You make Nebraska yeah, like a hell of a suburb, though. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see a turkey living there or even really wanting to live there. Yeah, that's it. So, but they'd have to buy it cash, basically. Yeah, I think so. In order to fund this, fund this access fund, yeah. Or you could trade it. And I think that's also the other interesting thing about the, this as a possibility. Let's start to consolidate these chunks of public, accessible public ground into bigger, more meaningful chunks. And then also have just basically take away the problem by having consolidated private land as well. But those things are always problematic because the like values are pretty subjective. Yeah. So what what did you say that Onyx's math on this was? I'm going to get it wrong, I think, but I think it was 1.2 million acres and the uh, west wide um, with some huge chunks like Nevada alone was like 400,000 acres or something like that, or maybe Wyoming was 400,000. I can't remember the, the exact look of the map, but it's a big it's a big number. You tack 400,000 acres onto you know, some pieces of public and that changes the game. I mean, that's a lot of, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting. Well, uh, we have neared the end of our time together. I would like, uh, I'd like to know if Dinger would go out with a vocal apology or an audio apology. What is wrong with you? I, I could see how there's, I was one thing to not have turkeys living there, but it's another thing to not have turkeys dying with that sound being a part of the repertoire. <laughs> Is that really a turkey call, Dinger? Well, that's a turkey call. No, I know it's a turkey call, but I mean the sound. That's a turkey call. Okay. <laughs> so no, you would not use that in the woods? I want you to take us out. I want you to explain what happened and somehow give a listener a reason to come back. And that's the fly down tickle from your Eric Digger. All right. And until then, we want to hear your tricky stories. Hopefully we will have a long beard show and tell the next time we get together. Until then, keep it on gravel. <laughs>